when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the final week of the UK's general election campaign and the FT's interview with Theresa May. I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Stevens, the FT's chief political commentator, George Parker, our political editor, deputy editor Rula Halaf, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, and the FT's election analyst Matt Singh. Thank you all for joining. So the general election has entered its final hall. We've had some TV debate, some surprising polling momentum, but where exactly is the campaign and is the final outcome in any question? Matt Singh, let's begin with the state of the polls. The most striking thing this week has been a new model from YouGov, big British poster, and they have essentially predicted Conservative losses at this election on just about now, giving the Tories a three, four point lead. What's going on there? And the big question everyone's asking, is it true? Well, this model that they've done is essentially a fancy statistical way of taking all of the information in a large sample of polling data, using it to identify types of voter, matching it with the census, and then effectively modelling how likely everyone in the country is to vote and who they're likely to vote for. Now, the results it's coming out with in terms of seats are actually not that surprising because the regular polls that they're doing, they did another one last night, they're showing the same sort of popular vote number, sort of three, four-point lead. So the model itself is the thing that's got everybody talking, but really the interesting bit is the underlying polling. So there is, as you say, a big difference between different pollsters, and as we've covered before, it does come down a lot to how different people deal with turnout. So YouGov's showing three, four-point Tory leads. ICM and Comrades showing 12-point Tory leads. The main difference between them, to uh, oversimplify, is that the ones showing tight leads are taking younger people, people who haven't voted for, at their word when they say, or when they say, I'm going to vote this time. The ones showing much wider leads are looking at the demographics, looking at history of how those groups have voted or not voted in the past, and assuming the same again. This is the question, Jim Picard, which is, are we seeing some kind of another polling mistake like we had at the 2015 general election? Because some of the trends that Matt mentioned there about turnout and about young people, exactly what we heard last time, that Ed Miliband was hoping to get into Downing Street on the back of lots of young people voting, but then they just didn't turn out on polling day and the Conservatives won. Is there a chance that might happen again? Well, by definition, there's a polling mistake because the people who've got a 15-point lead for the Tories or the people who've got a three-point lead for the Tories, one of them is way out. And I think what's happening here in terms of the narrative is all about expectations management. And if you take any normal election where the two parties are neck and neck and they have highly respected leaders going into that election and you were to say a week before election day, the Labour Party is somewhere around probably average eight points behind, you'd say what the hell is going wrong for their campaign? 
why are they failing to narrow the gap? And you look back at Ed Miliband two years ago, there was that famous Guardian front page headline when the they said... The day the pose turned. Yeah, and I went back and I read through that again. And to be fair to Patrick Winter, who wrote it for The Guardian, he did hedge it very carefully. But there was at least one poll there where Labour had a five-point lead and yet they were still toasted on election day. And we just have to learn from these mistakes and not get too carried away by rogue polls. Philip Stevens, where do you think the momentum is in the campaign at the moment? Because we'll come on to it's been a pretty good week for Labour, actually, considering Jeremy Corbyn was so low in the polls. He's gradually risen. He's had some good TV appearances, whereas Theresa May hasn't really gone anywhere. The dial hasn't shifted at all for her. And she's still sort of trying to recover from that social care policy mess up. I'm not actually sure it's been a great week for Jeremy Corbyn. I think for the Conservatives, we've reached a sort of oh dear moment. This election was supposed to be a sort of presidential procession. Mrs May would come out, say, strong, stable leadership. She had a poll lead of 20-25%, so the poll said at the beginning. She would spend three or four weeks saying, I'm the only leader who can negotiate Brexit the country would rise up and support her and she would waft back into number 10 with a massive majority of 100 or more. Hasn't worked out like that Um, quite. If one believes the polls, and I put an if, one believes the polls, it's not going to be quite that simple. And people are now talking about, even those who are optimistic for the Conservatives are talking about 70 or 80 seat majority. I think journalists like pollsters have to be reasonably humble after some of the upsets of recent years. My own intuition is that the polls at the very beginning of the campaign vastly overestimated support for Mrs May, and the polls now vastly overestimate support for Mr Corbyn. I don't believe that 38 or 39% of the British public are going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, I mean, this does tend to happen sometimes in campaigns. And this is a slightly unique situation because it was a surprise election. So the people who were taking polls earlier in the year didn't have their election head on, so to speak. They weren't actually thinking, they were being asked, how would you vote in an election tomorrow? No one thought an election was actually imminent. As soon as the campaign started, you got this huge rush of enthusiasm for the Conservatives and people on the right generally. UKIP collapsed, accelerated, Tories surged into a huge lead. Labour surge then followed. So certainly the gap between the two, as you say, probably was overstated at the start, simply on the basis of this rush of enthusiasm. Now the suspicion perhaps is that it's gone a bit the other way. But Jim, if we look at what's happened in the campaign, on Monday we had this leaders' debate. I put that in inverted commas because it wasn't really a debate. Jeremy Corbyn came on, had a conversation with Jeremy Paxman, some voters, then Theresa May did that. And the expectations were pretty low for the Labour leader. But I think he performed pretty well and he seems to have had quite a lot of media training and his Muncia Zen personality. He was wearing that with ease and he didn't get riled at all by some pretty aggressive questioning and came across quite reasonable and well. And a lot of his supporters have said this is a tr- for him. Yeah, exactly. When the expectations have been set quite low by the media and indeed by his own MPs, it's not surprising that he's outperformed. And this is a guy who is at his most comfortable on the campaign trail, talking to crowds. He's not someone who likes to manage things. He's not someone who's ever run a bath in the last 40 years, let alone a G7 country. His skills 
are in talking to people, communicating. If you watched him on the one show on Tuesday evening, he came across as a lovely guy, like a really warm Tin of jazz he, over. he was really, really likable. And when Theresa May was on that programme, she didn't really pass the human test in quite the same way. And you're right in his debates with Paxman. He was perfectly fine in taking the answers from the crowd because in a way his positions are so hard and they've been so hard for 40 years that he has an answer for everything whether it's his past sort of links with Irish republicanism or whether it's why he wants to borrow 250 billion and why that's perfectly fine and why he wants to nationalize everything he's not a man of nuance and therefore answering different questions comes quite easily to him I think this tripped up the media in a way, Philip, because when he had his sit-down interview with Andrew Neil last week, he tried to focus on his past links to the IRA and all this kind of stuff from the past and whether this made him a suitable candidate for prime minister. Yet he didn't really get under the skin. You know, he said, I have never met the IRA, which is painfully not true, that there's a lot of picture evidence that he has met with the IRA, but it just seems to brush over him. Well, I'm not sure. I think certainly in the Jeremy Paxman interview, you could see moments when Jeremy Corbyn was looking as if he might lose it. But I think it's a generational thing here. If you're old like me, you remember these associations. And so it matters that Jeremy Corbyn was a friend of Hamas or was a great cheerleader for the IRA or whatever. If you're an 18 to 24-year-old where his strongest support lies, that's sort of ancient history. So what he said about Jerry Adams or Martin McGuinness in 1980, when was that, doesn't really register with his own supporters. You know, I was giving a little talk with some younger people recently, and I said, here's a guy who thinks Hugo Chavez was a great hero, the man who ruined Venezuela. And they sort of looked at me, Hugo Chavez? Who is this guy? And it reminds me ever so slightly of the Trump campaign where you had people saying, how the hell can you elect this guy who has these issues with women, who is not a climate change believer, who has issues with his dodgy university where he ends up paying out millions to people who believe that they've been defrauded. And yet his campaign weirdly offered a more positive message and Hillary Clinton was just stood there pointing out the problems with the individual. And you are seeing that once again where Labour is throwing money at every single demographic slice of society, whether it's preschool children, school children, students, working people, people on the dole, pensioners. They're just chucking money at them, perhaps because when they wrote that manifesto, they didn't think they were going to possibly win the election. And therefore, all the kind of negativity that the media and the Tories are bringing up about Corbyn is in contrast to that. And it, it is reminding me of America. One thought, though, before we get carried away, I live in a Labour Conservative marginal in London. If Corbyn is doing so well, why is it that the candidate in that constituency, the Labour candidate, doesn't mention Corbyn on any part of her literature. I think this is something that I've seen from the campaign trail as well. The feeling that you often get on Twitter and on Facebook that Jeremy is riding high isn't always reflected on the ground. And when you go to those quieter marginals, there are people there who just say, I like the sound of the idea of some of Labour's policies, some of the redistribution of wealth, but I just can't get my head around Mr Corbyn. And it does raise an interesting question, Jim, that... If Labour isn't successful in this election, which I think we sort of all broadly agree is the most likely outcome, if another younger, more dynamic figure comes along with similar policies, they might have more success. Yeah, I think going back to the YouGov poll and the reasons why we don't think it's particularly credible is when you look at a granular level at the seats, which in theory Labour could be taking 20 off the Tories, if they exist, the Labour Party doesn't seem to know where they are because if you ask them, they can suggest, well, maybe Brighton, Kempdown and maybe the Gower 
and possibly a few others here and there. Whereas it's very easy still to identify scores and scores of seats, particularly in the Midlands and in the North, where Labour is looking vulnerable to the Tories. So taking it to the whole leadership issue, you know, that question, we don't know what the potential answers are until we've seen the result on June the 9th. The worst nightmare for the Labour moderates, and this is quite conceivable, is that Labour goes backwards by 20, 30, 40 seats, and yet it gets more than 35% of the total. And the reason that that's a symbolic number is that is the figure that Tony Blair got in 2005 and won an election. And they might use those statistics to try and cling on for another go, quite potentially. Now, the other big event we had this week, Matt, was the seven-way debate with all the leaders, except Theresa May, who said she was too busy focusing on Brexit or something, so she couldn't turn up. She said Amber Rudd in her place. What did you make of that? And what was the sort of conclusion that came out of all the people? So this was late. Labour, Conservatives, Lib Dem, Green Party, UKIP, Plaid Cymru, SNP. Well, I mean, the thing with these debates is that they tend to get watched by maybe 3 million. I think this was slightly over 3 million people. So I think it hit 4 million at the peak, but about the kind of 3 million, 3.5 million. Sure. And so that's just under 10% of the electorate, or maybe a bit more than that, the likely vote. And you have to think who is actually watching it, how many actual undecided voters are watching this. And that's roughly the sort of proportion that say in one of these gold standard probability surveys, I'm 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 interested in politics. It's interesting and I'm sure it's great TV to a lot of people, but I'm not sure undecided voters really watch it. Philip, when I looked at this debate, the big question was about Theresa May didn't turn up to this. And obviously the reason was she didn't want to be seen giving credibility to the Liberal Democrats or Labour or what have you. It's also a risk to do these debates because if someone takes a big chunk out of you, then it's hard to come back from. Do you think she was damaged at all by sending Amber Rudd in her place? I don't think so at all. I think it's the sort of thing that excites people like us and a small number of sort of metropolitan... Our listeners as well. ...the sort of metropolitan political classes. But I think given how little politics most voters absorb, even during an election campaign, and rightly so, there's no reason why they should follow every twist and turn, I think this is one of the more forgettable moments of this election campaign. I saw some polling research which asked thousands of people what the few things they had noticed in the campaign had been. And the two things that stuck out was May not taking part in debates and the other was Diane Abbott being unable to add up. But whether those things change how you're going to vote is a totally different question. And finally, Jim, what have we got coming up for the last haul of the campaign now that Theresa May is trying to focus relentlessly on Brexit, which, as Philip has written in his column this week, is kind of a weird thing because she keeps saying this is a great national moment to rally together, but not actually talking about Brexit, whereas Jeremy Corbyn is doing the classic Labour thing of focusing on public service and talking about the NHS. Exactly. So I think Corbyn's going to be on the road from Saturday right through to the end and going on and on about social care, health education, preschool, care and all the rest of it. And what's quite interesting is that they've been trying to get the subject off Brexit more or less since it happened. And I remember doing by-elections at the end of last year where you'd go around towns and the Labour people would be there with their banners just desperately trying to talk about the NHS and getting ignored. So it's really interesting to see that in the actual general election that is getting some traction, much more traction than people anticipated five weeks ago. And as you say, Mrs May will be wanting to talk about Brexit, Brexit and almost nothing apart from Brexit. And just to finish off, the deficit debt compared to 2015 absolute silence on what until quite recently were the only things that certain people seem to care about in British politics. And on the Brexit thing, Philip, do you think that resonates with people? Do you think they're going to vote based on what they want Brexit to be? 
look, I think the country has decided that we voted for Brexit last year, so we should have it. And I think probably also that she is more likely to deliver it than Jeremy Corbyn. Whether they get fed up with being told strong, stable, better deal, I'm not sure. I think one of the problems for Mrs May of this election campaign is that she's put herself too front and central. It's been too presidential. And people are beginning to look at her and say, oh, I've had enough of that. And I think so playing the same tune, which is what all the campaign managers say you've got to do, I think sometimes can go too far. And I think some people are beginning to talk about this election. It was unnecessary. And we're rather fed up with hearing the same thing over and over again. And last thought, Matt, do you think there's a chance voters will end up punishing the Conservatives for calling this election? It's difficult to say because obviously in any election there are all sorts of issues and this is obviously pretty unusual in the sense of an election being called sooner than four years into the term. Difficult to say, there isn't much historical precedent, but it's possibly one thing that's on voters' minds and also maybe it reinforces some stereotypes they may have of the Conservatives already. You know, But we all remember, of course, Edward Heath in 1974 calling an unexpected election on the basis of who governs Britain and the electorate answered resoundingly, not you mate. Theresa May has ducked a couple of interviews this week, but she did find time to sit down with the Financial Times while on the campaign trail in the East Midlands. Jeff Dyers, the FT's analysis editor, speaks to George Parker and Rula Halaf about what the Prime Minister had to say. This is Jeff Dyer, and I'm in the studio with Rula Halef, the deputy editor of the Financial Times, and George Parker, the political editor. We've just come back from the interview with Theresa May, the Prime Minister. George, if I could start off with you, how did she come across a week before the election? Did she show any signs that she was nervous about the tightening opinion polls? No, I mean, unless you were to read it out from her facial expressions, she gave no ground at all in the interview. She conceded no mistakes have been made in the campaign. When asked about you know, the size of a majority, she retreats into the soundbite of there's only one poll that counts, the poll on June the 8th. She won't accept the campaign as wobbling. However, if you look at some of the body language, I think when Rula suggested that there'd been a change in the mood in the country, you can almost see a sort of look in her eye. And the fact is, people at the top of the Conservative Party are nervous. They were commanding leads around 20 points or more at the start of this campaign now consistently running in single figures, so the nerves are showing. Rather, what was your sense? Is this someone who is in a sense of denial about what's been happening in this campaign, or is she just very confident that ultimately she'll win through next week? I think that's actually a very difficult question to answer. I've been thinking about it. I think probably not. She probably knows exactly what's going on with her campaign, but is hoping for the best and knows that ultimately she will probably win. At times, she almost seemed startled by some of our questions. And I think particularly when we described the shifting mood in the country and the fact that Corbyn seems to be surging despite expectations of labor collapse. So to me, it was very interesting that she seemed more nervous and vulnerable than her image suggests and everything that is said about her suggests of, you know, strong, stable, steely. And I think that is probably also a function of the fact that she must have been extremely tired. She's been on the road constantly. Another thing that really struck me was that we had two readers of the FT with us. This was sort of an engagement experiment. And I felt that she was happy for them to ask a couple of questions when we were done. And 
I just felt as if she was so much more comfortable talking to them than talking to us. And so I think there's something about Theresa May that if she's one-on-one with voters, she connects really well. And then suddenly she's in a media setting and she clamps up and can only repeat the same lines. It's fascinating. George, you mentioned there's a huge contrast, particularly in your piece, between her apparent confidence and some of the very biting criticisms from other members of the Conservative Party and senior members of the party, the way this campaign's been conducted. Just how bad are the recriminations and what does that mean for the post-election? Well, I think the candidates who entered this election expecting them to be able to win with a huge majority have now revised their opinions down and now they're saying there'll be a sigh of relief if we get through with the majority at all. I think when Parliament returns after this election, if Theresa May wins, there will be a lot of recriminations. The recriminations centre partly on the way that she's run the campaign and her reliance on a very small group of advisers. One Tory MP said it was like a Stalinist sense of control in the campaign that the voters didn't like. And I think the other people are saying that there's almost like an emperor's new clothes effect with Theresa May. People, I think, in the Tory party thought that the more voters saw of Theresa May during the campaign, the more they come to like her. But in fact, some Tory MPs who've long thought that Theresa May was a less substantial figure than necessarily the public saw, feel that during the campaign that's been exposed and actually the voters have seen someone who not only is a bit like other politicians in the way she did the U-turn on the manifesto and then denied there being a U-turn. But some clarification, not a a U-turn according to her. But um, but someone who just maybe isn't quite as good as they thought. Well, how's she going to come out of this viewed internationally? Is she going to come across as a more diminished figure after this election? You know, I think... Internationally, people don't focus so much on the size of the majority or her campaigning style. I think ultimately, if she wins this election, she'll be fine. One of the things we discussed with her yesterday, I said that when I speak to officials across Europe, they say they really don't care whether she has a large or small majority. They don't even understand why she called this election because their position will not depend on how strong she is domestically. So if she thinks she can compromise more domestically, then okay. But they're not going to change their position. All they want, from what I hear in Europe, is for her to get on with this election because they feel like this is part of the whole stalling on Brexit negotiations. They just want it over with. That's a really interesting point that Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, let the cat out of the bag at the start of this campaign when she said the bigger Theresa May's majority was, the more she would be able to compromise in Europe. Now, Theresa May then said that wasn't the case at all. And she refused to engage with us on that point when we spoke to her in the interview. But I think that is the point. The bigger the majority she has, the better able she is to manage her party and media expectations as she makes inevitable compromises that are needed. Yeah, but on the other hand, you could get a lot more Eurosceptics elected, couldn't you? Yeah, I've seen people speculating on that. My guess is that the party won't be any more Eurosceptic. I think actually, in a way, the the referendum erased that old division between Eurosceptics and pro-Europeans in the jargon of Theresa May. You know, we're all... Brexiteers now. And I think in a way that this new intake of Tory MPs, if there is a sizable new cohort of Tory MPs, I think they're going to be less ideological rather than more ideological. I think that those battles are kind of in the past now. So if she does end up with a much smaller majority than she'd hoped for when she called the election, does that have any real impact on Brexit at all then? Well, if she comes back with a majority of anything under 50, I think her position internally in the Conservative Party is weakened. People will start to ask, what's the point of that? Could there be a challenge to her leadership? I think if the majority falls below 20, then I think her position would become much more precarious. Whether there'll be a challenge given the proximity of the start of Brexit talks is a different question. But I think most people would agree in Brussels that having a strong prime minister just makes it easier to negotiate with them. I agree with Ruler that they're not going to bend very much according to the size of the majority, and that's irrelevant. But I think they would prefer it that they're negotiating with a strong prime minister. And if you have a prime minister who's been 
diminished by the campaign and then is facing a mutinous party at Westminster. That complicates things considerably in terms of the negotiations. Well, one of the interesting themes about this election, apart from Brexit, has been the conservative ideas about state control, about controlling energy prices that seem quite jarring considering everything we've thought about the Conservative Party for the last 30 years. What did she have to say about that and how worried Rula are our businesses about this apparent more status bent? from the Conservative Party? I think businesses are very worried. And businesses are worried about that, but they're also worried about the fact that they don't have access to Downing Street in the same way. I mean, maybe under Cameron, one might argue that there was a bit too much access. But today, there's very little access. Business people that we talk to say that if it's not about Brexit, then Downing Street doesn't want to hear from them. And then even when it is about Brexit, they won't tell them very much about their plans. So when we asked her about that, Interestingly, and in fact, to my great surprise, she absolutely denied that there was any issue, any concern, and said that she'd met them early on when she took over and that she'll be consulting them on Brexit. And so then I think, George, we asked her, but why are they frustrated? I mean, this isn't one or two people. This is pretty widespread. And she wouldn't budge. She just wouldn't budge. She said she couldn't understand what the frustrations were about. As we said, she mentioned the fact she met them right at the start of her tenure in Downing Street to talk about Brexit. This was back last summer, you know, a year ago. David Cameron would have the heads of FTSE 100 companies in all the time on a regular basis just to hear their concerns. And so there's a sense of distance, I think, between business and the Prime Minister and also a sense the Prime Minister doesn't really care that much about business. We talked about the interventionist policies and you know, possible protectionism and controls over takeovers. But then, of course, there's the immigration question, where there's a sense that Theresa May, coming from that Home Office background, is much more concerned about hitting the numbers target that yet again has appeared in the Tory manifesto, rather than worrying about the, the cost to industry. We tried to press a little bit on what are the priorities, which industries, which sectors does she think will still need a significant number of immigrants. And there, too, she said that this is something that they will be studying. Did you get the sense that she gave anything on that? No, I don't. I think that's the odd thing that came through in this interview, that this is supposed to be the Brexit election. But in fact, beyond the, the high level, sort of slightly platitudinous repetition of sound bites and speeches that Theresa May gave a few months ago, there's very little new detail about exactly how she's going to approach things like single market access or, or immigration at all. I think one of the more interesting moments where I think she wasn't quite able to answer the question was, George, when you asked whether the government could possibly be prepared for both eventualities, mm. the no deal and the deal, and how could they possibly put everything in place so that if we end up with no deal, we can actually operate? Yeah, and we put that question to her twice and she evaded that question because to actually put in place a contingency plan for March 2019 for a no-deal scenario, the possibility that talks just break down at the last minute in the new um, Europa building in Brussels. That means you've got to have legal frameworks in place, international treaties, customs checks, thousands of new customs officers, new regulatory structures. I mean, on the off chance that at three o'clock in the morning in Brussels, the talks break down, that, that is the fallacy, I think, behind the no-deal argument, because we simply can't be ready for that, because I think physically it's impossible to do it within that time period. And I just don't think the government would spend that money on an eventuality which may not come to pass. I think that's why the whole idea of a transition would have to be there in either case. Yes, and she said, didn't she, um, we asked how long the transition period might be. Implementation period. She calls it an implementation period. And she said that some people talked about it being two or three years. But then she said that it would depend sector by sector. I suspect in some cases it could be considerably longer than two or three years. One final question before we have to go. Theresa May's stumbles in the opinion polls have been Jeremy Corbyn's gain. George, what are you drawing from this? What should we conclude from Jeremy Corbyn's surprisingly strong showing during this election campaign? Well, it's fascinating. 
fascinating because the Tories thought they could crush Jeremy Corbyn. The more pressure they put on Corbyn during the campaign, that he would disintegrate. And they had all the stories about Hamas and the IRA ready to go. The opposite has happened. The public have actually warmed to Jeremy Corbyn. I think there are two things about that. The first thing is that the Labour manifesto was something which was coherent in its ideology. You might disagree fundamentally with it, but it was an old Not style... Not its numbers, but in its ideology. It's an old-style socialist manifesto of tax and spend with the rich people and corporations picking up the bill. And you had someone, Jeremy Corbyn, who believed in it, was happy to defend it while Theresa May was running away from her own manifesto. Jeremy Corbyn was happy to talk about it. And he came across as someone who was authentic. He appeared on TV shows. He brought along pots of jam from his allotment to present to the presenters. And I think people just thought maybe he's not the monster that some people were making him out to be. And I think also there's an element of the British sense of fair play, the sympathy for the underdog. Now, I still think famous last words in this podcast the week before the election, when it comes down to it, all of that and all the polls and all the rest of it, there'll be a late move away from Labour. And I think Theresa May in the end will come home with a reasonably comfortable majority, despite all the wobbles of the last few weeks. Having made two predictions during Brexit, I will not predict anything on any election anymore. But I think the fact that he comes across as authentic resonates. Theresa May comes across as a lot more controlled in her message, whereas I think he's improved in coming across as authentic. And I don't know if you've noticed, but he has started to even dress a lot more like a prime minister. I do think voters seem to have warmed up to him, or at least they're now willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. On that note, I say thank you to Rula Khalaf and George Parker. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next Friday morning with a special instalment following the general election. In the meantime, you can follow the day-to-day coverage through our election countdown email, which you can sign up to on ft.com. Thanks for listening. 